Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Hi, welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I have with me two of our top brilliant, bright attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm, Christopher Drynan and Brian Green, who are joining me to discuss the topic of trends in H-1B processings, practical tips on how to avoid getting RFEs and hopefully get helping you to get approvals for you and your company and your employees. So without further ado, let's just delve into the subject matter for today. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what we're seeing at the Murthy Law Firm, the kinds of trends, the kinds of issues that are constantly giving you as employers headache and sleepless nights because you're not working with the world's best immigration law firm. Okay, kidding aside, the USCIS has been issuing a lot of RFEs and the three main issues that they're harping on over and over and over again like a broken recorder is maintenance of status. Namely, is the H-1B employee maintaining her or his status in the United States so they can approve the H-1B extension of status? The second big issue is the right of control. I'm sure many of you who have been processing H-1s have been seeing the USCIS is saying, you as an employer, especially in a consulting company relationship where there's an end client, a vendor, uh, employer, vendor, and client, EVC model, that you don't have the right to control your employee and hence we're going to deny the petition. And the third big, big issue is specialty occupation. Is the person really doing the sophisticated complex job as required under the H-1B regulations as defined as a specialty occupation requiring a bachelor's degree or higher education as the minimum level for entry into the occupation? And so based on these three big hot button issues, both Christopher and Brian are going to answer a bunch of questions. So with that, let's get started, Chris. Maintenance of status. There's a hot, hot new case, matter of simio solutions. People are generally familiar with it, but this is a great opportunity to delve into it briefly so we can get to how an employer can avoid dealing or deal with these issues. Well, thank you, Sheila. Um, matter of Simeo Solutions is a case that came from the USCIS. It's called the Administrative Appeals Office, which is basically the appeals arm of USCIS. Uh, and it dealt with the issue of when you needed to file an amended H-1B. Um, for many years, the, the practice was and the general assumption was, and it was confirmed by some guidance from USCIS, was that if you moved an H-1B employer to a different location, all you needed to do was file, uh, was to get an approved labor condition application, an LCA with the Department of Labor. Would they call that an LCA update? It would be called an LCA update. It used to be a common practice. Um, what this matter of Simeo Solutions case said was that if you had a situation where an employee moved to a different location outside the area of the original LCA, you actually had to file an amended H-1B petition. The LCA update is no longer uh, sufficient. And this case came down from the Administrative Appeals Office in April this year, and it was followed by uh, a memorandum from USCIS, which came out in August of this year, um, discussing the, the, these requirements and giving some, some guidelines here. Um, this memorandum that came out from USCIS in August uh, gave 
something of a grace period and some uh, what we would call a safe harbor for employers. Um, if you had an employee that moved before Simeo Solutions came down in April of 2015, you generally do not need to do anything. Um, USCI said that it would normally not, it would normally exercise its discretion not to pursue any negative actions against employers in this situation where someone moved before Simeo. Uh, someone who moved after Simeo in April and before the memorandum came out in August, um, they do have to file an amended H-1B, but they're given a window of opportunity to do this until January 15th of next year, January 15th of 2016. You have to file an amended H-1B by then or USCIS can pursue negative action against you. Um, for employees who move after the date of the final, final memorandum in August of this year, you have to file an, uh, an amended H-1B before the employee moves to a new location. Um, so so this that's is a lot of burden and it's a lot of change in the rules of the game, which is so confusing and it's so difficult for consulting companies, which sometimes may end up having to move employees every three to six months. It's a huge, huge waste of time and money. And sometimes it's not always easy to even comply because you finish the person finishes the project and they just sign a new agreement. They can't just now do it. They have to wait and file the H-1 amendment and then move the person, which could take two, three weeks because mm -hmm. getting just the prevailing wage and the LCA approved is taking seven to 10 days. Sure, and clients a lot of times are not going to wait for that, and we're talking about additional filing fees. It is a huge, a huge burden. Mm -hmm. And so this whole issue of the maintenance of status is definitely becoming problematic because for those who are transitioning from F1 to H1B from certain schools, because the USCIS has started to question the field of study as not being directly related to the CPT or the OPT positions, and they're approving some H-1B petitions without approving the change of status, but approving it for consular processing, which we will again explain what that means later on. Yeah, and a quick example of that could be the student might be studying biology, but they may have OPT for a computer science job. And USCS, when you file the H-1B, USCS may deny the change of status and say that that degree was not as closely linked to the um, OPT work as was required, so they would approve it, but you had to have the worker leave the country and come back in with a new visa. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there are ways to avoid um, RFEs in these situations or requests for evidence. If we're talking about CPT employment, um, you, will, you would want to include things like a cooperative agreement with the employer, uh, basically laying out everyone's responsibilities here and sort of uh, confirming that this is part of the education. This is not just a method to, to extend work authorization. Um, you'd also want some evidence from the school that this curricular practical training education is integral, the word is integral to the field of study. Um, so it could be a, perhaps a letter from the school, course catalog, um, transcript showing that the person is getting college credit for this education. Um, you'd certainly need a new I-20 uh, from the school's uh, DSO authorizing this employment. Um, and you'd perhaps want to include um, academic work completed as part, um, part of the CPT. Perhaps if you completed a paper talking about this internship uh, and demonstrating that it's relevant to the, to the field of study that the person is in. Wow. So that's, you know, that's, uh, those are good, very, very good tips. Thank you, Chris, for how to try to avoid an RFU on this issue about 
the CPT slash OPT sometimes being relevant or not being relevant, particularly the CPT. And what happens, Brian, then if the change of status, like we said, is dis- is denied and the person's then approved for consular processing? Yeah. It's not the end of the world, Sheila. I know it's going to be a problem you know, having this person leave and not be either project or at your company headquarters for a time. But they can go back to their home country. They can consular process their H-1B. And they can enter the country up to 10 days before the start date on their H-1B. Okay. So that was the issue number one, the big issue, maintenance of status on which you as employers and we as attorneys have routinely been seeing the USCIS giving people a hard time or denying the cases, particularly with F1 students, but also sometimes for H1s, H4s, etc. The second big, big issue, the right of control. This has become such such an overwhelming issue since January of 2010, since the Newfeld memo was released. And we are seeing USCIS denying H-1 petitions when they have not, when the employer has not been able to provide extensive evidence of the employer-employee relationship, especially in the field for consulting companies with the EVC model type of work. Yeah, and we've seen a lot, Sheila, of, of situations where USCIS is essentially disregarding their own guidance on this issue uh, and denying H-1B petitions after they've requested and received extensive and specific uh, documentation regarding end clients and vendors. Um, for example, contracts, um, uh, letters from vendors and end clients. Um, you know, and, and essentially USCIS has been ignoring this evidence or stating that no evidence has been provided. Uh, and that's been a very common thing we've been seeing a lot recently. Um, and another issue here that's always a problem to employers is that end, end clients are not uh, parties to the filing of H-1B petitions. Um, you know, they regard this as the responsibility of the employer. So, uh, therefore, they, they frequently don't regard providing letters or uh, cooperating in, in the preparation of H-1Bs or, or request for evidence responses as part of their responsibility. Um, so they, they won't provide this documentation that USCI seems to expect to see. And it's true. And so I guess, Brian, if you can comment, I know that there was some kind of a meeting between the American Immigration Lawyers Association with the California Service Center saying, you know, discussing this issue. Right, Sheila. There was a a meeting and there are um, notes from that meeting occurred in the summer of 2014. Essentially, USCIS admitted that an end client letter was not absolutely required and you could provide a combination of documents that would establish to a preponderance of the evidence, as the standard is preponderance of the evidence, that there was a relationship and there was control here. But unfortunately, as Chris said, USAS will say one thing and often do another. They're ignoring their own statement saying end client letters not absolutely required. And they'll often follow the January 2010 memo, which had these really extreme requirements about uh, right to control. So if the USCIS issues an RFE or denial saying that there's no letter here, if you have given the evidence that Chris talked about and been very good in documenting the relationship, you may be able to get USCIS to change their mind by saying, hey, you just said this a year and a half, a year ago, that this is not absolutely required. So are we using that in our RFEs or responses? Are we using this routinely, the USCIS, California Service Center, open letter, open house position? Because that, I think, will go a long way. Because sometimes I feel like a lot of the USCIS examiners are smart, bright people, college educated, 
but they don't understand immigration law. They don't know the nuances. Somebody teaches them. They feel like, oh, let's protect American workers. Let's give them the employer a hard time and the employee a hard time. And then when you say this is what your own senior leadership has explained, then they're like, oh, okay, thank you for the educational tool. So what are some of our other suggestions? Well, there are some documents that you can provide to, to either avoid requests for evidence or respond to requests for evidence if, if you receive one. Um, obviously, we talk about in-client letters and, and not being specifically required, but if you can get an in-client letter, obviously that is perhaps the best evidence uh, of an employer-employer relationship. Um, a good in-client letter should indicate clearly and explicitly that the petitioner is the only one that has the right to control the work uh, of the beneficiary, the H-1B employee, and that the end client, the, the client receiving the services of the H-1B employee, doesn't have the ability to assign this person uh, to another workplace, another project. Um, should also document the petitioner's right to hire, pay, and uh, in the worst case scenario, fire uh, the H-1B employee. Uh, by offering things like an employment contract, offer letter, or an employee handbook. Um, and if you provide an employee handbook, which we always urge people to do, needs to be signed by the employee to, to indicate that the employee has reviewed the handbook and agrees with the contents. Wonderful. Very, very good points. Brian, it looks like you're dying yeah. to say something I'd, else. I'd like to add that it, what the USAS is looking for here is documentation of how the employer is going to control the worker. And building off what Chris said, if you have given this contract or you have given a handbook, you want that to explain in detail how the employer is going to manage the day-to-day -day work, how you're going to track that employee, how often you're going to review their work? Are you going to answer their questions? And it's not just enough to have it in writing. You also want to follow through with that, obviously, and create the documentation starting today if you have to. And do a weekly log of what the employee is doing. Have them send you a weekly update listing out, I worked on these different aspects of the project. And then have these routine reviews where you go over the work and see how they're doing and keep records. So if you're reviewing their work every month, you at the end of the year have 12 reports showing, hey, this worker did a great job and they got a 85% or a 90%. If you establish that habit, you build up the documentation, the RFEs get easier to respond to. And also the routine, I guess, performance evaluations. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And there's some other documents that you can provide here. Um, proof of employee benefits to provided to your H-1B employees. Uh, I'm frequently asked, do I need to provide insurance um, to my employees? No, you don't. But does that indicate very strongly if there's an employer-employee relationship, if you're providing health insurance, dental insurance, uh, life insurance, things like that, yes. I mean, you can provide documentation of that. That's a very strong factor. Um, you also can document the tools that you provided to your H-1B employees. Uh, cell phones, laptops, uh, technical manuals, um, reference materials. All of these things, if you provide them to your H-1B employees, that's also a pretty strong indicator that there is a valid employer-employer relationship here. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes you'll have uh, employers that have their own proprietary uh, information, software, <laughs> tools that their employees use when they're at, at work sites. Um, if you can document this, that's also very helpful. 
And Sheila, just to add to that, if you have any patents that your company holds, if you have licensed products, if you trademarked anything that your company does, showing that you have that intellectual property ownership of your materials, of your work, will show USCS that you're not simply just providing a worker as a placement agency, you're actually providing a real service that's unique to your company. And if you can show USCS that you're tracking how the projects are being completed, not just for one worker, but how the work is actually being implemented. If you have any uh, project plans, if you have documents showing the project execution, those will show USCS that you're involved and you're controlling the work. Good point. And I think at the end of the day, if you as an employer feel that you've given everything, you've thrown in everything, including the kitchen sink, and the best or some of the best evidence is not available to you. For example, you can't get the incline letter, which explains all the details of the project, or you can't find a particular contract, um, or certain of the job duties and requirements of the position are somewhat limited, then you need to try and get an email confirmation of the end client's refusal to provide you with the more detailed information that USCIS is asking for, because that again shows that there is a relationship between you and the end client, and that the end client is actually, in fact, not main, not having the direct employer-employee relationship, so it can serve multiple purposes. We've also seen denials after the VIBE RFEs, which request information that actually should be publicly available to the USCIS. So again, challenge the government, don't just become a sitting duck waiting to be taken down, sit there and defend your position, fight tooth and nail, throw back their own different, um, you know, meeting notes or discussions, what have you, because everything that you can do as an employer to show that you absolutely are not going to lie down and take their denial shows that you believe in your case, you believe in the legitimacy and bona fides of your petition, and that you have a strong legal team that is fighting for you and for the success of your H-1 petition. So those are the first two big issues we've talked about, the maintenance of status, the the whole issue about the employee's maintenance of status, and the right to control, the employer-employee relationship. The third big, big uh, RFE situations that we're seeing cases are specialty occupation. For some reason, this has become a bigger deal in the last year or two, where the USCIS says, guess what? We've agreed to everything, but we're not even sure that your employee is working in a specialty occupation. And they're defining very, very more, uh, much more restrictively what is the specialty occupation than what they have used in the past. They still rely on the OOH or the Occupational Outlook Handbook for their guidance. Yeah, Sheila, this is something we have been seeing a lot of recently. For for some reason, USCIS has really been focusing on this issue recently, more than they have in past years. Um, just to give uh, people an idea, uh, specialty occupation in the H-1B context means, does the job you're offering to your employee require at least a bachelor's degree in a particular field? And I think it's the particular field part of this that USCIS is really hitting on. Um, the, the theory is, if you have a job that anyone with any bachelor's degree can do, it's not specialty occupation. So this question tends to come up when you have someone who is in, uh, most commonly in an IT position, and they don't have a degree that's, that's squarely related to IT. Um, Maybe an engineering degree. Engineering degree. Or perhaps we'll see people with um, chemistry degrees or pharmacology, uh, pharmacy degrees working in IT positions. And this is problematic because if... It, 
USCIS's theory here is if you have someone with an unrelated degree doing the job, it's not a specialty occupation. You could learn it some other way. You could learn it through experience. Which means it's not potentially, in USCIS's reasoning, it's not, not specialty occupation. Now, sometimes this, is, this can be explained. Uh, if you have someone who's got a pharmacy degree who's working at a pharmacy company, that's, that's entirely, entirely reasonable. Um, if you have someone with a pharmacy degree who's working at a bank, maybe not so much. Um, another issue here that's, that's related to this um, is that USCIS, as Sheila mentioned, focuses on, on what's called the OOH, the Occupational Outlook Handbook, um, which is a Department of Labor publication. And sometimes uh, the OOH descriptions of jobs are a bit dated. Um, and they'll say in some cases that jobs don't require a bachelor's degree when it's, it's universally accepted among employees that they do. Um, systems analyst, for example, it says, it, it says a bachelor's degree is not always required in this type of position. Whereas that's almost certainly, I think everyone would agree, that's really an industry policy that you do need a, bachelor, a related bachelor's degree to do that type of job. So OH may be behind the times here? Definitely, definitely. Uh, Sheila, to avoid RFEs in this situation, Chris was mentioning the computer um, systems analyst. We've seen problems where employers have listed either programmer or web developer as the um, as each B occupation, and USCS unfortunately has come to the conclusion that these are usually not specialty occupations. So, if you are using programmer or web developer, even if they were approved in the past, you may want to talk to a qualified immigration lawyer or the Murthy team to see whether there was a better job title to use based on the actual job duties, and. We've seen that software developer still is considered a special occupation by USCIS. Uh, things change over time, but if you're using software engineer or software developer, you're probably going to have an easier time. But USCIS definitely looks at the job duties. They love the word engineer. If you use engineer, <laughs> software engineer, you know, systems engineer, that means you require an engineering degree or a related field that can equate to an engineering. But if you use words like programmer or web developer, in their mind, you know, it could be somebody who's self-taught, a high school graduate, maybe a two-year associate's degree person. So keep that in mind. Be clever and strategic if you have to revise the way in which your company has certain job titles. It's not a bad idea to make it, to ensure that it is consistent so that it's not just for your H-1 petitions for your foreign nationals, but consistent even with all of your American workers. So it doesn't, so the two hands actually clap and match with each other. Some other documentation you can provide to, to address this. Um, if you provide any training to your employees, um, provide things like training certificates, training schedules, uh, receipts for third-party training that the employer has paid for. Um, and another thing to consider is in sort of a related, uh, related issue here, we've also seen some RFEs asking about the beneficiary's qualifications for a specialty occupation, uh, and especially focusing on the beneficiary's field of study. Um, in a strong H-1B case, you want to see a strong and clear nexus between the specialty occupation uh, in the field of study. And this was something I was discussing earlier, when you have someone, for example, with a pharmacy degree working in an IT position. Um, you really have to be able to document the relationship between the degree and the work that the person is doing. And Sheila, sure, we've seen problems with MBAs. So it's popular, I think, for a lot of uh, people who have some experience to get an MBA. They might even have a focus in information technology. But USCIS looks at that and says, this is a business degree. 
you know, why are you a, why are you going to be a you know a project manager or a project developer in IT context when you have this background in business? So when you have that problem, you may want to look at their undergraduate degree and see if they have something in their earlier education that may help them with a job. They're also having problems, like you said, with engineers. They like it when it's a software engineer, but if it's a job that's more like a mechanical, yeah, electrical, mining mechanical engineering. engineering, you may have had so mm -hmm. much math and you may have really learned how to use mm -hmm. algorithms and equations, but USAS is just not linking those two together. So the strongest jobs are where someone has a uh, computer science degree, information systems degree. Those degrees, USAS just believes in them and they just feel comfortable. For the IT field. Now, obviously, as we all know, an H-1B is also possible for an English teacher with a master's or a bachelor's degree in English literature, for example, because some people are like, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, it just happens that in this day of technology that a lot of our H-1s tend to be technology-related or engineering or math or science, but you can get an H-1B as an artist with a master or bachelor's of fine arts. You can get an H-1B as a professor teaching English or music or anything. Uh, but another trend that we've also been seeing is the USCIS denying or revoking where multiple CAP subject H-1B petitions are being filed for the same beneficiary using the same end client. So you have to be very careful because some people say, oh, I'm going to try and increase my chance of getting my H-1B uh, selected in the lottery by applying using the same underlying documents. But if USCIS figures it out, you know what? You could end up getting denials on both cases. Even we've seen cases where one was actually previously approved and then they open the second one and say, how does that happen? That means there was some nexus between employer A and employer B if they were using the same underlying documents to work with the end client. So really the purpose is to remove the incentive to file multiple petitions simply to increase the chances of selection. But if it's two completely different projects, different underlying documents, different employers that have no relationship with each other, that is still permitted. Yes, Sheila, this is something we've seen a lot of recently. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We've seen notices of intent to deny, notices of intent to revoke. Um, in, in cases where you had multiple H-1B fi H-1Bs filed for the same beneficiary um, where the H-1B petitions were had similarities that, that came to the attention of USCIS. Um, frequently it's the same end client, a lot of times the same job description, um, and sometimes USCIS will discover uh, that two, um, two of these, that these two companies have similar content on their websites, um, and all of this leads USCIS to the, the suspicion or the conclusion um, that these are not two legitimate, two legitimate positions. Um, essentially, uh, you would have to prove to USCIS that each of these petitioners has an actual business need to file this petition, that this is not just a way around the H-1B quota mm -hmm. or a way to increase Correct. their chances. And that they're not related that entities. they're not related entities. Yes, uh, one suggestion for the upcoming CAP, for 2016 CAP, there's a, a problem with the STEM OPT periods right now, and there's uh, we wrote about this on the Murthy.com website. The U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C. issued an opinion in this case called Washington Alliance of Technology Workers versus Homeland Security. And unfortunately, the court agreed with STEM OPT in theory. They said that it's a proper use of the F-1 visa program, 
But USCIS and ICE and DHS didn't follow the rules when they promulgated the SEM extension rule back in 2008. So unfortunately, right now, February 12, 2016 is the end of STEM OPT, which may cause problems with CapGap for some students. But USCIS and ICE and DHS have time to reissue the regulation. If they do it in a timely enough manner, giving notice and comment, which they didn't do last time, if they can do that the right way, then STEM OPT can continue and a lot of great workers and students in the U.S. can stay here and we can have that development we need in this country. That is really depressing that students who thought they had a 17-month extension and many of them, because I've been getting quite a few consultations on this specific issue, hey, I've already got an approval till next November of 2016. Um, what happens to my STEM OPT approval? Is it valid? Is it invalid? Well, nobody knows for sure because right now it's supposed to end in September of 2016 unless the Department of Homeland Security, as Brian Green just explained, follows their own law, the Administrative Procedures Act or the APA, follows the notice and comment period. And really at this point, uh, in early October 2015, they really don't have much time. They just have about 40 days. Call your senator. Call your congressperson and tell them we're going to lose these talented students and workers. There's time left, but they need pressure. And, you know, the government thinks they're being so brilliant. The Department of Labor thinks they're being so smart and brilliant in saving these jobs for American workers. But guess what's going to happen if an employer or companies aren't able to find American workers on American soil, which has been the biggest uh, grouse and the biggest uh, fear factor as far as employers are concerned? Uh, they're going to end up sending those jobs abroad and working remotely f in other countries. The whole outsourcing thing happened because of all these gazillion blocks that we're putting in this day and age when the world is so much flatter than it ever has been. And with technology and the Internet and innovation making, you know, different countries, different cultures, different time zones become far less important than t even 20 years ago. So the the bottom line is DHS has to follow its own law and follow the right dot the I's, cross the T's. But if they do it and everything goes in order, then the hope and expectation is that the Department of Homeland Security will continue to be able to approve the F1s, you know, the OPT validity and extensions. But if that doesn't happen, that's the risk we're all facing. So, you know, the, the, sort of we can continue. I know there's a lot more that we have, but our always our biggest concern is to try to stick between the 30 to 40 minutes for you as employers that are taking time in the middle of your day to participate in these monthly multi-law from telephone conferences. Um, and before we sort of conclude, since we have just a few minutes, maybe what we could try to do is just sort of quickly go over you know, the H-1B cap. All of you are aware of the H-1 cap. The You know, the maximum number is 65,000. You have the 20,000 extra for those who've graduated from an American university, a U.S. accredited school. And it has to be a nonprofit school because a lot of people are getting denials on that basis or RFEs, even after the USCIS has approved those people's H-1 petitions before and extensions previously. Uh, anything you want to add on that, Chris? Yeah, I mean, the, the issue of being a nonprofit is is something we've seen a lot of in recent years. Um, and it was a very nasty surprise to some people who had, who had gotten approvals before with for-profit colleges that they, uh, that they assumed were, were acceptable. Um, this, is, uh, this is something you sometimes see from USCIS, where they'll essentially ignore a regulation for years, then at some point decide they're going to start enforcing it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that just happens from time to time, unfortunately. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of a little shocking, especially because, you know, here is this great democracy that we call America, the world's greatest democracy, the most successful democracy, and everything is sort of based on this free enterprise and free spirit and sort of this almost, to some extent, this artificial distinction because a for-profit university versus a non-profit you know, really, it's just to save tax money, really. I, in fact, they should give more importance to a for-profit because they're paying probably way more in taxes than a non-profit that's probably avoiding paying taxes to Uncle Sam and helping our economy on the whole. And similarly, we have the whole issue about, you know, H-1B requirements, as Chris had earlier talked and Brian had also discussed. You know, you need a bachelor's degree or higher as the minimum as the entry level for the position for it to qualify as a specialty occupation. So if your job isn't defined properly, the job duties are not considered complex, it could end up getting denied. So those are issues we really need to be careful about. There'll be one good thing this year, this year the H-1B and L-1 additional fees are sunsetting. So for this springtime, it may cost a little bit less to file your H-1Bs if you're a company that has a large number of H-1B or L workers. The, okay. the $2,000 fee, if you had more than 50 workers and more than half of them were in H-1B status. Right. And there's a higher fee for L-1s, I think? Uh, the L-1 fee, it's something we don't see that often. I, I don't know it off the top of my head. No, but both it is, those are sunsetting. So that would be nice that this springtime it will be a little bit cheaper in the government filing fees. Wow, nice. Well, if no one's thought about it, we may not want to ma- make a big deal <laughs> and mention it because I always worry that as soon as they find out about it, they're going to be much more likely to do something about it. So I'll tell you, we can continue for another half hour and hour easily because we have a lot more exciting, fun issues. But since we know that you have taken time in the middle of your day, I think it's important for us to try to conclude and say that as you as we know, you know, we all know scrutiny with H-1B cases continues to be on the rise especially for information technology consulting types of companies that are working on the EVC model. You as employers may want to understand the details about the F1 students' work authorization so that they can be a smooth transition from F1 to H1, especially as we're not sure what's happening after February 2016. And of course, at the end of the day, nobody knows which case will get selected if it's an H1B cap subject case because of the lottery where approximately in 2015 only one out of three cases on average was selected for the H-1B lottery and if the economy continues to improve then your chances actually become worse and worse your chances go down for selection as more and more H-1B petitions are filed as the economy continues to improve so you need to contact your congressman your senator your uh, legislator your federal senators to to request them to either completely eliminate this artificial false H-1B numbering system that is depriving American employers of valuable good workers from across the globe that can continue to create jobs and make us and ensure that we remain the globally competitive uh, technology leader in the world. Um, So I know I can get very excited about this whole issue and passionate about it. But I would like on behalf of Chris Drynan, Brian Green, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm family to thank you for taking time in the middle of the day to participate in today's monthly telephone conference. And hopefully, if you're not already working with the world's best immigration law firm, we invite you to give us an opportunity to work with you, not just after you get a, an RFE or a notice of intention to deny or a denial, but to work with us 
preact proactively and preemptively to avoid getting many of those RFEs, noids, or denials because we really do a very detailed job to take care of you and your company's success and your employees. Thank you so much for taking time, and you have a great day.